I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project, the show where we dissect the Bible and take a deep dive into its teachings and viewpoints, always free from the boundaries erected by religion. Um, Once again, we are here with our newest skeptic, Katie. Hello, Katie. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. So I thought today we would start by talking about an article I saw on CNN.com by A.J. Willingham. The article is titled, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal. So we're talking about the rapture. Um, Many of us who grew up in the Christian church are familiar with the term. And um, this article talks about how people that grew up as children um, being taught this message, it created a lot of anxiety for them, which... um, has stayed with them their whole life. So let me just take out a couple little quotes from the article. From the moment they are old enough to understand, millions of people raised in certain Christian communities are taught that the rapture is something that can happen at any time. Though there are different schools of thought as to how such an event would go, the basic idea is the same. Righteous Christians ascend into heaven while the rest are left behind to suffer However it happens, it is something to be both feared and welcomed, to be prayed about and prepared for every moment of a believer's life. And so that gives you a little background into what many Christians believe. And then here's another quote, Rapture anxiety, as it is often called, is recognized by some faith experts as, and mental health professionals as a type of religious trauma. Darren Slade, the president and CEO of the Global Center for Religious Research, says, this is a real thing. It's a chronic problem, he says of rapture anxiety. This is a new era of study, but in general, our research has revealed that religious trauma leads to an increase of anxiety, depression, paranoia, and even some OCD-like behaviors. I need to say this prayer of salvation so many times. I need to confess my sins so often. Now imagine, he continues, you are taught that at any minute you could be left here on earth. What does that do to the teenager who just had premarital sex or even simply took the Lord's name in vain? So in a previous episode, we talked a bit about the end time viewpoint taught in various churches. In my church, we didn't believe in the rapture, really. We did believe that the second coming could happen at any moment, but how that would all play out was more of a mystery. But sure, it did cause a certain level of anxiety, but I went to a Christian school with many kids who did fully believe in the rapture, and I absolutely remember some of the more serious stress and anxiety that that caused. At one point when I was a kid, a group in our congregation were persuaded that Jesus was going to return and they would all be raptured up any day. They were listening to a Christian radio host named Harold Camping, who studied the Bible and thought that he found a secret code, which revealed that Jesus would return in September of 1994. These people were absolutely convinced of this. I remember some of them would sit on their rooftop, watching the sky at night, waiting for this apocalypse to begin. Our pastor was furious that they were following Harold Camping, and most of them 
uh, permanently left our church. Obviously, um, Jesus never showed up. And Harold Camping kept pushing the date back, citing math errors that he made when reading the Bible. Amazingly, he didn't lose any followers. They just stayed with him for many years of false predictions until he died sometime in the last few years, I think. But yeah, the children were traumatized, and I knew some of them who have had serious mental issues related to this, and they still deal with it to this day. And I'm not shocked at all to hear about how this teaching has led to serious long-term trauma from a mental health perspective. Yeah, I think what's really interesting in here is that the article, they kind of bury the lead. (laughs) It's like towards the end where they're like, modern rapture theology only dates back to the 1800s. Um, and then they point out that the word rapture doesn't even appear in the Bible at all. Um, so this is like very relevant to the, you know, the project of this podcast, you know, being a skeptical about the Bible. And it just, I mean, I don't know. It just, I also did not grow up in a church that believed in this, although I did read some of the novels that they reference in here. Um, But it just kind of makes me, like, when they talk about a latent fear of an impending, inevitable end, like, that's how I feel without the Bible. I mean, between climate change, the way that climate change is accelerating pandemics, late-stage capitalism, all of this, like, I, I have that for, like, actual real reasons um, that, yeah, it's just wild that there's this whole rapture movement built around something that doesn't even appear in the bible yeah um i like totally echo everything that you guys were saying so far i mean i think that it's not surprising that um people feel anxiety if they think that the world is coming to an end and um their salvation hangs upon whatever last decision they made Um, I also think it's interesting that this theology, um, like so much of what the church seems to affirm without question, is not old and not um, really—doesn't have a long history in in the Orthodox uh, Christian theology, Um, especially uh, like premillennialism is not really something that uh, existed. And, and, you know, we've pointed out that the apocalypsism that's in— the New Testament a lot of times is because of uh, expecting an imminent return of Christ within their lifetime, not uh, thousands of years later. Um, the good news is that nobody um, has ever made any rash decisions because they thought the world was ending or because of some sort of apocalyptic belief. Um, <laughs> yeah, David Koresh a... or uh, the, uh, <laughs> those bald guys who thought the Halbop Hal comet was going to come and take them away. Um, it's not a healthy belief. And, uh, and like Katie says, we have real problems in this world, um, (laughs) that are like threatening our very existence. Uh, we should really be focusing our energies probably on trying to, uh, deal with those issues that are super important rather than, um, stress about trying to make sense of prophecy, something that no one has been able to do since, uh, times biblical. Yeah, we're not going to get into the all the specific verses. There are verses that um, rapture-believing Christians use, um, verses about being caught up in the air with Christ. And I think what Ben said is important, that most of the end times passages in the Bible were um, prophesied as happening during the lifetime of Jesus' own followers. And then a lot of this information comes from Revelation, which is um, just kind of very difficult to 
interpret as anything uh, literal that that Christians should be using to this day, which is why I think it's kind of a um, more of a modern um, doctrine, um, as you both said. I also think that this type of anxiety uh, is fuel for the church, for the church's control factor. I mean, what better way to keep people coming back and staying devout than to scare the shit out of them with fear of being left behind Mm -hmm. or just fear of hell in general? You know, I I know that whether it was the rapture like I experienced in school with with friends or just in church of fear of like um, doing anything uh, sinful whatsoever that you're going to be burning in a fire pit for all of eternity... Um, this is a way that the church perpetuates itself. A hundred percent, yep. Okay, so let's jump right back into the main topic. So last time um, we were talking about women in the Bible, and we went through um, some examples from the Old Testament, but we focused mostly on the New Testament and um, some of the more difficult passages and more controversial passages regarding women. Um, so we're continuing on with that discussion here and um, taking a close look at some of the viewpoints of various authors, and we're going to look at the church more directly this time and talk about how the church has used these passages and applied them um, to how women are treated and what roles they are allowed to have and not allowed to have in churches. Um, but we've before we get into the church specifically, I wanted to take a moment to look a little closer at the Apostle Paul and what his actual views on women may have been. So we read early on in Paul's writings where he seems to have a more progressive viewpoint on the subject. Uh, But later in Paul's letters, the tone and even the teaching seem to shift to a radically anti-woman position. This has led many New Testament scholars to conclude that Paul's actual viewpoint was largely pro-women, but his message was corrupted by later editors and redactors. As the church became more established, um, so did the suppression of women. Uh, And I wanted to give you a quick excerpt from Bart Ehrman's book, Jesus Interrupted. Anyone who's been listening to our show know that uh, we've referenced Bart Ehrman quite a bit, and um, I thought this Uh, passage from his book was um, very relevant to what we're talking about. So he says, similarly, some biblical views of women are superior to others. And so the Apostle Paul's attitude about women is that they could be and should be leaders of the Christian communities, as evidenced by the fact that in his own communities, there were women who were church organizers, deacons, and even apostles, like in Romans 16. That attitude is much better than the one inserted by a later scribe into Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians, which claims women should always be silent in the church, 1 Corinthians 14, 35-36, or the one forged under Paul's name in the letter of 1 Timothy, which insists that women remain silent, submissive, and pregnant, 1 Timothy 2, 11-15. To me, this is, uh, before we get into the, the views of the church more broadly, um, I just think it's fascinating because you you get a higher form of the church, more organization, and as that happens, it seems like naturally the role of women that that was prominent in the early churches, churches were meeting in the households of women that were organized by women, and then you get into the pastoral epistles and you have women basically um, completely subordinate to men, having to remain silent, 
And their only thing that they can even do for themselves is have children. That's the only way they can even be saved, um, which is, um, according to the pastoral epistles, which as we discussed last time, is a radical departure from everything we know about salvation and justification in the Bible. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Um, Paul is a figure that it seems like everyone wanted to... um, use his name to affirm whatever theology they were preaching in the immediate aftermath of uh, Paul's life um, or contemporary with uh, Paul's life. And there seemed to be like two strands. On the the one strand was a, a redaction, like you said, of Paul's more emancipatory um, statements, um, either through writing letters in his name that, that um, don't seem to contradict. Women can't not be leaders and also be uh, disciples and um, deacons and whatever other leadership roles. Um, it seems like that emancipatory prospect in Paul, like from Galatians, uh, Galatians 3, about there being no difference in Christ was was something that was threatening to a lot of people in the early church. Yeah, I don't know. It's just when I think about this, it's like, is this the same Paul or how much of this is revisionist, like... Either, you know, once the Roman Empire adopted um, Christianity as its official religion, how much of this shifted at that point, or just thinking through the early church when they were deciding, you know, which books would be part of the Bible. Um, And even like we talked about um, in the previous episode, how um, Phoebe, the translation of the Bible in the 1980s was like, well, this word means deacon, but in this context, we think it just means servant for Phoebe. So yeah, I just wonder about how all of these changes and shifts came about, whether it was in Paul personally, or if it was these other dynamics at play afterwards. Yeah, I think it's frustrating because when you look at these things, we can't uh, get a definitive answer in you know most historical studies. But I think most scholars definitely see this progression, um, and we know that the pastoral epistles were not written by Paul, so that's an easy one. So then the real question is this verse that we find in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, Bart Ehrman, like in this quote I just read, seems to say that that was not original Paul either, so he has the view that the original Paul was not nearly as misogynistic, and he was even... um, providing leadership roles for women and then it was um i think there's pretty strong evidence that that later church editors um, and leadership added these very anti-women passages but like i said there's not you can't come to a definitive answer on that so i mean i think that the question of um was it a was it a process of um, like neutering Paul's message uh, in the early church, or was it a process that happened later on in Christianity? And I think sort of it's both, um, because I think that we have these early texts coming out, like um, you know, almost contemporaneous with Paul or right after Paul, um, written in his name that are uh, negating some of his message. But then you also have editors later on like Katie brought up, um, that are making choices uh, based on their own assumptions to translate uh, Juna's name to a male name, to translate Phoebe as a deacon to servant. Um, even in Pseudo-Paul, or you know, one of the books that at least is disputed in Ephesians, 
there's an editorial choice to separate verses 21 and 22, where the husband should love the wife as Christ loves the church, and then the editors immediately separate that passage from the passage of the wife submitting to the husband under the heading, wives submit to your husband. So like that editorial choice emphasizes the wife wife submitting to the husband by separating those two passages. Again, Ephesians probably wasn't written by Paul, so it's sort of a, a moot point. But I think that the most restrictive way to interpret these passages is the way that they've been interpreted all along. You know, it's frustrating that we can't, that we don't have access to the um, original manuscripts of what Paul actually wrote down to find out, you know, what what his actual views are. And it's frustrating that we may be kind of at the mercy of the church um, tradition, um, which has clearly uh, erred constantly on the side of misogynistic um, interpretations. But let's get into that. Let's talk a little bit about the church. Um, Katie, I know you've looked into this a little bit to give us an overview about um, what some of the uh, various churches uh, believe on these things. Yeah, so I mostly focused on um, different denominations' views on whether women can be ordained um, and then their views on abortion, um, because abortion is really the litmus test for bodily autonomy, um, and that's something we covered in part one, where, like, do women have the authority to decide whether or not to cover their head? Um, so, yeah, those were the lenses through which I was looking at this. Um so, for instance, in the Catholic Church, women cannot be priests, um, and the Catholic Church, the official Catholic Church, also condemns abortion. Um, within Protestant denominations, um, there's a number where women can be ordained. Um, the first was the United Christ, the United Church of Christ, which ordained um, the first female uh, minister in 1853. That was Antoinette Brown Blackwell, and she was an abolitionist and a suffragette in New York. Um, the largest Pentecostal denomination in the U.S., that's the Assemblies of God USA, um, allows women to be ordained, and they claim that a quarter of their clergy are women. Um, the Methodists um, also ordain women, as do the Episcopalian and Anglican churches and Presbyterian Church USA. However, the Presbyterians are not the only Protestants, um, and there are... <laughs> I mean, if you look at the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is much more conservative, women can't be ordained there. We've talked about this on previous episodes as well. Um, all of the limitations on what kind of leadership roles women can take. Um, and then to look at this through the, the lens of abortion more specifically, um, so the, the Catholic Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all of these groups oppose abortion. Um, so does the Orthodox um, Presbyterian Church and just generally more um, stringent or conservative Presbyterian and Protestant churches. I do want to highlight some... Um, Christian organizations that are actually fighting for reproductive choice. Um, so there's the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, and that is made up of um, the Episcopalian Church, the Lutheran Women's Caucus. So again, that's a caucus, not the whole Lutheran Church, and some Methodist groups, but majority Jewish groups um, and some of the Unitarians. Um, 
which I, I think it's like not everyone considers the Unitarian Church like Christian um, because the unit. Yeah. So I haven't really like focused on them, but that's just kind of the lay of the land in terms of where churches are at in terms of women's rights in the year 2022. Thanks, Katie. That was really interesting. Um, we have this idea that the way that we perceive women in ministry now or like growing up in the what we would call the evangelical church has been like an unbroken string back in history, but that's not really the reality. If you look at it, there were women in ministry in various denominations and throughout history. And I also think that it's fascinating that there are Christian groups that are working on women's rights issues um, that are important today. That's encouraging. Yeah, and I'm curious more broadly, why do you think that conservative churches are so committed to relegating women to housekeeping-type roles and keeping them far away from any leadership roles? You know, last time we spoke about a poll from the stateoftheology.com, and we looked at the polling data among evangelicals in America. What was fascinating is that on core doctrinal issues, the respondents weren't all that conservative. When people were asked about the divinity of Jesus or original sin, large percentage of professing Christians held completely heretical views, according to the standards of most churches in America. They basically hold views completely contrary to historical Orthodox Christianity. Um, but when it came to abortion, something that's not mentioned in the Bible at all, more than 90% agree that abortion is a sin. And that percentage has been growing over time. So the church is getting more conservative on these cultural issues. Um, does this stem from these verses in the Bible, or does this stem from misogyny more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I was just... Um I was telling Katie before, it's kind of fascinating that abortion wasn't an evangelical issue until the late 70s. Even in the early 70s, evangelicals, Christianity Today did a polling of evangelical doctors and evangelical theologians, and they were really um, unable to come to any clear moral conclusions about abortion. They basically um, wanted to affirm the health of the mother. They like wanted to account for certain exemptions. They weren't willing to call it morally wrong. And that's changed so much in 30 years. And really, the, the way that it changed were evangelicals were drawn into the religious right and um, political power. And this is a long tangent, but I'll just give you the quick version in order to prevent desegregating their private institutions. Um, that was the first issue that galvanized the religious right. So they didn't want to lose tax exempt status at Bob Jones University um, by not allowing African American students in. Um, once they were bought into that, um, they they got them with other wedge issues like lower taxes or abortion, um, and we, that's what's got us to this point today, where uh, forty years later, um, it's such a fundamental belief. Um, in our churches that we can't even imagine a time where Christian evangelical Christians were more reasonable and willing to listen to the nuances of an argument um, when it comes to something like abortion. Instead, they basically uh, parrot the talking points of uh, abortion clinic bombers and extremists. The issue of abortion is so important 
because the anti-abortion movement is basically trying to take autonomy away from women. I think that there are passages in the Bible that agree with that notion, even when they are not talking about abortion specifically. There are definitely verses in the Bible that basically say women are the property of men, and their main purpose is to have children and raise children. And now we see the result of those verses in action when we look at a lot of the churches in America. Katie talked earlier about being in a church like that as a woman, and I think that the anti-abortion movement is the political outworking of it. The anti-abortion crowd love to hold up the Bible, but according to the polling that we talked about, they don't know what the Bible is teaching about their own religion, and the Bible is silent on the specific question of abortion. I should say, obviously, a lot of Christians disagree with me, and they will cite verses to argue against abortion rights. My point is that those arguments are abstract, and abortion itself isn't mentioned. They derive the position by using verses that talk about God knowing us in the womb, etc. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it sort of leads into our next section, um, which is uh, about the relationship between um, inerrancy and um, the subjugation of women. We've talked about it on previous episodes, but inerrancy is also another idea that doesn't go back like historically very far in Christianity. It's, it's from the uh, 1970s. Um, and it's really a product of the infantile culture wars, um, which was the debates on modernity. And interestingly, those debates came right at a time when women were enrolling in seminaries and women women were uh, preaching in the ministry, and um, that in order to buttress the church against this sort of newfound power that women were flexing, they developed this idea of biblical inerrancy. So it provided the ultimate justification for patriarchy, because basically the whole concept of inerrancy is based upon the slippery slope. So if you get rid of Paul's really uh, offensive text, you know, Paul in quotes, about women— we would quickly be hurled off the cliff of uh, biblical orthodoxy or biblical truth. Um, if you don't accept uh, Genesis as a literal creation myth, then, you know, how do you know that Jesus really died and rose from the dead? Um, some of these questions may be actually fair questions. So this was the context of the inerrancy fight, but it really was tied to gender from the beginning. The Southern Baptist Conference specifically Basically, there, it was a direct challenge to male headship that was caused by the rising number of female Baptist preachers um, that put the conservative Baptist leaders on defensive as they uh, came to the defense of inerrancy. And the SBC was one of the founding um, groups of the conference in Chicago that uh, came up with the statement on inerrancy. And, uh, yeah, it, it worked to push uh, women out of the um, pulpit and uh, accomplish what they wanted to do. Another doctrine that has been used to subjugate women is what we talked about before, the submission of Christ in the Godhead to God the Father, which is the Arian um, controversy. It sort of rebranded itself um, amongst these uh, pastors who are the defenders of patriarchy. We quoted Owen uh, Strachan earlier, the understanding of the complementarity of men and women 
on a relationship of authority and submission in the nature of the Trinity. So that's the, the like the fundamental way that they understand um, wifely submission to the husband or womanly submission to the man is through Christ's submission to God, which is literally the heresy of Arianism. You know, it's just interesting thinking about this after what Ben brought up about the history of the evangelical and Protestant churches stance on abortion. Um, why did they not see abortion as a threat? Why did they just think that it was a Catholic issue? Um, because I mean, like if we think about the witch hunts, the, I mean, women were killed across Europe. Um, Sylvia Federici argues, um, at the advent of capitalism, you know, the, this workforce was needed. And so we had like men, you know, professionalizing medical care, except not really doing it well at all, if you look at history from this time. But so you had that happening at the same time, right? These new official doctors wanted to run women midwives out of town and women herbalists out of town. But you also had this need for um, women to just continue giving birth and have less control over whether or not they were going to have a child because a workforce was needed for uh, like the beginnings of capitalism. And so it's like abortion has always been a threat um, to men and to the accumulation of wealth in many ways. And so I'm just kind of grappling over here with why um, the church did not, wasn't focused on it as a threat um, until it coincided with these other political issues. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy enough to trace patriarchy um, if we step outside of biblical the biblical narrative to trace patriarchy through actual history, how gender roles were developed, like through what production was happening. And so, you know, obviously productive labor of producing human life was something that the woman could only do. And a lot of times the division of labor happened because there were different realms like the home realm or, but, you know, at certain times those roles were materialized in different ways. So, you know, the work in the field might be shared by both uh, the husband and the wife. I think one of the things that's interesting about patriarchy is the way that it, it persists throughout history, even though it changes its form. So one of the books that I'm using, um, this The Making of Biblical Womanhood, um, traces a lot of the women's roles in the church throughout history and the ways that they were able to participate in history um, sort of assume different things. So in like um, the medieval times, um, women were assumed to act more masculine if they wanted to be. So they were out slaying dragons in the stories and doing these like miraculous feats and um, in embodying sort of more masculine qualities of like the epic hero, they were able to, I mean, not that these stories are real, but, you know, they were able to uh, be affirmed as these like heroes of the faith. Later on, it's like cloistered in a nunnery and separated and like virginal is the way that you serve God by being chaste and like, um, you know, saving yourself. Um, then when the Reformation happens, uh, it changes again. And now you're supposed to be a good, loving wife and your, your job is basically home care. So like patriarchy is very resistant 
Um, and even though the roles of women have like uh, evolved and mutated, uh, patriarchy is a persistent thing. But I think that that's like the reason like we have these texts that are written by people that are part of like patriarchal society and subscribe to patriarchal beliefs. And then they've been interpreted by uh, men throughout history. And so I think that that taints the whole process. So we have to do a, in addition to the like historical reconstruction we have to do of all these texts, I think we also have to do a reading beneath these texts and the biases that they contain. Now again, if you believe that these texts are inerrant and perfect and don't contradict each other and were given from God's mouth, that presents a problem because uh, you're not able to do that type of critical analysis. Um, but that's, I think, what we're trying to get to on this show, hopefully. Yeah, and Ben, to your point about the persistence of this, the Catholic Church, which has evolved on many important issues throughout the centuries, yet one thing they still haven't budged on is the exclusion of women as priests. In the Reformed Protestant perspective that I grew up in, they won't allow women pastors, women elders, or deacons. There was no women leadership whatsoever. It's amazing how many things through the centuries that the church has evolved on, whether they admit it or not, they have evolved. This is one thing that seems to be set in stone and they will not budge on it. It's a little mystifying to me that this is the issue that they are least willing to show any flexibility with. It's also like counter actual social practice because... There's never been a time in the history of the church where there hasn't been, in some form or another, women leaders. They, were, they may have been burned at the stake or something um, for being a heretic, but there were certainly people—there's a lot of scholarship that's going into like drawing these people out through, through the history um, now, but there were always people, women— that were part of ministry throughout history. So the the idea that this is even reflects actual practice, and it's to the point of lunacy. I mean, Beth Allison Barr, who wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood, I'll just keep plugging that book. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I don't agree with everything she says in it, but I think it's an interesting um, take. I mean, she wasn't allowed to teach a Sunday school class at her her church, even though she's a, a doctorate, like she's a, do, a scholar of, uh, of medieval history, because there were 13-year-old boys in the class, and that would be considered teaching men. So, I mean, it gets to the point of lunacy. But again, but at the, out of the same side of the mouth, people will say, well, it's not an inferiority. It's just a difference of roles. Well, that's an inferiority. That's like you're not even allowed to teach a class that you're obviously overqualified to teach because there's a 13-year-old boy and you happen to be a woman. I mean, that's like the definition of inequality. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many factors at play here, but it also makes me think of... You know, the Reformation was lauded because Martin Luther translated the Bible into German so that more people could read it, and that extended power, right? And so I feel like in, in the Reformed churches today, at least, this complete opposition to, to ordaining women, it feels like a, another similar consolidation of power. Um, uh, similar to how the Catholic Church, you know, pre-Reformation was like, the, the Bible's in Latin, and the priests are going to read it and tell you what it says and interpret it for you. 
So it, it feels like, on the one hand, an attempt to consolidate power. Um, and it. I also wonder, um, again, not erasing what I think is just this deep, deep vein of misogyny, but I also wonder if, because John, you were talking about how the, the church has made these other gradual shifts over time and they have just stood so stubbornly on this one. I wonder if it is because of the feminist movements that we've seen. So, you know, the feminist movement was basically born in the abolitionist movement. The Grimke sisters, among other female abolitionists, were like, oh, no one will even listen to us advocate for people who are enslaved because we're women. So we also have to advocate for ourselves as women so that we can just be heard, so that we can continue our abolitionist work. And so, you know, if we think about like, that is, that's back in the 1800s. So there has been a feminist movement for a very long time. And I do wonder if the existence of a feminist movement of women organizing for the right to vote, for the right to, you know, have equal rights, all of these things has pushed the church to dig their heels in even more against this. You know, like, would they not view it as such a threat for women to be ministers um, or pastors if there wasn't um, this simultaneous feminist movement that's been happening, you know, for so long. But again, there's many factors. So I think this is just more like piecing together um, all of the different like underground roots that are intersecting in this dynamic. Yeah, I've always noticed that any feminist movement is met with like the harshest criticism from the Christian movement. Like I said, I'm a little mystified by that, but it's definitely true. And I think that they look at any feminist perspective as a huge threat to their authority. Because let's be honest, it's a patriarchy. It's men who have been interpreting the Bible, written the Bible, and have been the head of the church forever. I also think it's important to say that it's been the church's loss. When you cut off half the population from having any influence, you are stifling its progress, in my view. Every... Um, Every time humanity makes the decision to include women, we find that large leaps are made in the progress of whatever arena it is. Whether it's math and science or the arts, women's inclusion has been a major improvement. Even in biblical scholarship, the contributions of women has been remarkable, and it's a travesty that for centuries women were denied access to it. And currently, in fundamentalist churches all over the world, women's contributions are being denied. And again, I have to preface that we know this isn't all churches. There are a lot of very progressive churches that do include women and are run by women. But again, the majority of American churches have some form of misogyny embedded in it. We're focusing on that majority view among fundamentalist churches. And we're speaking from our own perspective based on um, what we grew up seeing. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Katie said before, like... I don't remember if it was this episode or the last episode about the the women in church. You know, as soon as church is over, they're downstairs getting the coffee or preparing food or doing whatever, preparing so people can fellowship while the men are up talking about theology or going over the the sermon. So it's like the women's labor is actually the labor that's allowing the functioning of the community, even though that they're like excluded and on the margin. <clears throat> so it's kind of ironic. Also, the other thing that I thought of when I thought of that was the story of Mary and Martha, where Mary is 
like patiently or attentively listening to Jesus while Martha is doing all the running around in the house. And Jesus basically says, Mary's the one that's doing the right thing. So, you know, affirming like a woman should be listening to me and not necessarily just having to like to, to attend to housework or whatever. Um, and then I also just think that you guys are completely right. Um, it's about the authority that rests on the people in the church. And, and I think this is like goes back to inerrancy. The real threat is that they know that they get their authority from that book, every word in that book being read uh, literal and true and God-breathed. And that's their interpretation of that literal, perfect, inerrant book is how they get their power. And if you're able to say that, well, this passage was a later insertion in Paul, or Paul didn't write Timothy, or um, we've been interpreting this wrong, then that starts to pull the string of inerrancy, and eventually there's not enough left for them to maintain their power. Yeah, Ben, that was a really good point you made about Mary and Martha. I hadn't thought about that. It's a perfect example to use in support of women's role in church. Like I said before, everybody cherry-picks the Bible. You can always find a pro and con view of virtually any issue using the Bible. So why not choose the pro-women verses that we find instead of the anti-women verses? I mean... Yeah, I really appreciated the the um, the point that you brought up, Ben, where Jesus was like, this is good. You should be sitting down and listening to me, not running around the house. And like, yeah, it's it's like this is, you know, there is so much exploitation inherent in patriarchy. Like as we saw at our church, like it was women who were doing so much of the labor that is required to run a church. It was women running coffee hour. It was women running Sunday school, Um, you know, and then and the nursery. Yeah. And then this also goes into the household itself, you know, all I mean, again, I'm speaking from my experience, but I think that it's pretty broadly shared. It's women doing the bulk of the work at home. And that is certainly what was modeled in our church. Um, most women were expected to be housewives if a family could afford that, you know? So it's like the man just gets to pursue whatever he's doing. The pastor gets to, you know, come up with the sermons and like tend to the flock or whatever, but it's the woman who is doing all of the labor to make this space for him to do that. And so it's this double exploitation because it's like, we're going to keep the woman doing that. We're going to keep her in the shadows, um, so that we can benefit from that. And then it's also we're not going to let women speak or teach or anything because if they did, they might be undermining this very convenient power structure that we've set up for ourselves. Yeah, it's funny, Katie, because in our church growing up, Sunday was considered the Sabbath day, also known as the day of rest. But in my house, it certainly wasn't a day of rest for my mom, who was tasked with getting the family dressed, fed, and uh, ready to go to church. She had duties at church, like preparing food, running the nursery, then, of course, feeding us all when we got home and preparing everyone for the evening service. So a typical Sunday had us arriving early for Sunday school, staying for the main service, then returning in the evening for a full evening service. It was anything but a day of rest, and um, especially for the women. I remember going to our pastor's house after church. His wife would prepare a large meal, usually for a group of church guests, 
as well as the family. And afterwards, the pastor would go and take a nap, and it was his day of rest. Well, it certainly wasn't a day of rest for his wife, so I think that it goes to the overall point that we've been making that the lack of equality within the church has led to this type of behavior. The church perpetuates some of the worst ideas in human history, and it always seems to be women that are left fighting for their place at the table. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. Welcome to Bible versus Bible, the segment where we take a close look at an alleged contradiction in the Bible, then try and determine if it is in fact a genuine contradiction. Katie, I think you have an interesting one to look at today. Okay, so for this version of Bible versus Bible, we have some more verses, um, and this one is on the question of whether God has favorites. So here are two verses um, where we see God displaying favoritism. Um, they're both from Romans chapter 9. So Romans 9, 11 to 13 um, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, quote, the older will serve the younger, end quote, as it is written, quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here God is very clearly showing favoritism. Um, he hates Esau and he loves Jacob before they're even born, before they've had a chance to do anything. Um, this, is, this is like very predestination. Um, but then um, we have in Acts um, and in Romans, God claiming that he has no favorites. So Acts 10.34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, quote, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, end quote. And then Romans 2, 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So um, what do you all make of this? I think that's interesting that when you read what Peter says in Acts, he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. If you want to be technical about it, that's just Peter's understanding. <laughs> so maybe God does show partiality. Um, so there is no contradiction. Either it's a contradiction or it's a horrible teaching because the idea that before someone is born, God may hate them. This obviously gets right to the heart of the church's longstanding predestination debate, as you mentioned. Ben and I did an episode where we dealt with this controversy, and it uh, really is a definite Bible contradiction because there are verses that talk about before the beginning of time, God choosing those who he wanted to save, and others who he chose to condemn before they were even born. This is the doctrine of reprobation, which was popularized by John Calvin. But then there are also verses that talk about the opposite, how we have free will to believe or not to believe. And a verse like this, where it talks about God having no partiality in Acts. So, in a technical sense, it may or may not be a contradiction, but it is definitely part of a larger contradiction that has divided the church for centuries. I'm kind of annoyed because I'm going to kind of say that it's probably not a contradiction, too. <laughs> um, well, because I think in Romans 2, 
what Paul is saying is that he does God doesn't show partiality between uh, Greek and Jew. I'm thinking just from like the context. Actually, uh, I think what he's saying is that God is not showing partiality between his followers. Yeah, I mean, so that would be different than not. And I do think that Paul is definitely teaching in Romans that God shows partiality. And I think that it's probably the one of the most difficult passages to, like, it's not something to read lightly, and people have struggled with it, and uh, it's been, like, the theological... Um, it's been a like theological struggle for people all throughout Christian history to uh, to deal with the doctrine of election and reprobation and uh, <clears throat> everything that Paul lays out in Romans. Now, the the Peter example is interesting. It's not necessarily a contradiction, except maybe the contradiction between what Peter thought and what Paul thinks, um, which is still kind of interesting. It's always interesting to bring out the idea of election because it's so contrary to parts of the Bible you read with sort of a uh, basic, just like a common sense understanding. And they're clearly teaching that the way is open to anyone that chooses it. Or that if you choose Christ, then you're one of his disciples. Or if you do this, that you're one of his disciples. So the idea that um, before you're born, that God could hate you, um, and it doesn't, it's not based on anything that you did, good or bad, um, but simply to you're either an object of wrath or an object that uh, he saved, you know, is a tough uh, doctrine to, to handle. I don't know. On the question of whether or not it's a contradiction... The only way you can interpret this in a way to get out of the contradiction is to say Peter was wrong when he said that God shows no partiality. And we can assume that the author of Acts probably isn't quoting Peter word for word here. He's likely having Peter speak a truth about God. So if Acts 10.34 is teaching that God shows no partiality, then it's a clear contradiction because several other verses in the Bible shows God definitely having partiality. Yeah, that could be true. I mean, I think Peter, if you read the book of John, Peter is sort of the foil of the beloved disciple a lot of times. So, But I totally agree um, that I think that the writer of Acts, we'll just call him Luke for the sake of argument, um, and the writer of the Gospel of Luke, we'll just call him Luke, and we'll say that they're the same person because we assume they are the same person, with good reason. It does have a different theology than Paul. Um, and there's other examples that hopefully we can, maybe this will be another episode um, where we can draw that out. But even like on, on the idea of um, what Christ's sacrifice means, they have a totally different answer. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if, if the author of Acts is having Peter say what he does believe. So yeah, so maybe it is a contradiction. I, I revise my answer. Yeah. And to your other point about Romans, for God showing no partiality, maybe referring only to partiality between Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek. The problem you still have is that it takes the positive nature of the verse and turns it into a negative. You would have to believe that God doesn't show partiality between Jew and Greek, but he does show partiality between individuals. 
That doesn't sound like good news. The word gospel means good news, and this isn't good news. The idea that God shows partiality and there are some people who are just written off before they were even born and destined to a burning pit of sulfur forever, well, that's not good news at all. Even if you are one of the lucky ones, um, is it good news that some of your friends and family are screwed? So anyway, I think it's a contradiction because both of these verses represent one of two opposing viewpoints that the um, church has debated forever. Well, here's, without going further down this rabbit hole, here's a couple other questions. So uh, that's a fair point. I think that Paul's definitely teaching in Romans uh, election and reprobation. Now, the question is, does Paul believe that you're, the reprobate are going to a fiery eternal damnation? That's another question. Um, I mean, so I think there's questions about if Paul's understanding is the same as our understanding uh, looking at the whole of Scripture and the theology built around it and trying to read Paul, um, because he may not be saying the same thing. But I do think it's difficult to get around it. I agree with you. I mean, like, the whole th- the whole tirade I went on was hopefully to say that I don't necessarily think it's good news. I think it's a really hard teaching. I think it's probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament if you're trying to be um, a believer, because it teaches a really hard um, teaching, but I also think that that's sort of what Paul is teaching. False witness. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Okay, so today we have four verses here. I have not seen these yet, and neither has Ben or Katie. I will start with number one. And Hazael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with child. Okay, and number two. Remember when the women of Israel said, My Lord, I have vowed to thee what is in my womb to be dedicated to thy service, so do accept it of me. And number three, the children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Okay, and number four, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. I don't know, these are tough. I feel like the fourth one makes me think of, like, Jericho. So that might have happened there. Mm. The third one makes me think of, like, when they made the golden calf. I'm like, is that what's happening there? Yeah, the third one seems weird to me. Strictly because I feel like the phrase, the queen of heaven, is something that I don't 
remember, and that stands out. I feel like if I had heard this, I that would have stuck with me. It just doesn't seem familiar. So I'm leaning toward that one. Yeah, this one is tough. Uh, I want to believe that number four is real. In my heart of heart about the upper millstone, crack the skull. <laughs> I just have to believe that that's somewhere in the Bible, um, <clears throat> lest I lose all my faith. Uh, I actually think number three, I I don't know. At first I thought it was fake, and then I thought for sure it was real. I was sort of thinking the same thing as Katie. Maybe it was like the Israelites were doing something stupid to a false god, and Yahweh or Elohim or Yahweh Elohim or El, whichever one it was, came down in rage. And uh, But um, I actually think number two is real. So that's probably the fake one. Um, and number one seems really wordy, but that could be, that could go either way, really. So this is a tough choice. Yeah, number two seems very real. Seems like there's no way that's not a real verse. Um, remember when the women of Israel said, My Lord, I have vowed to thee what is in my womb to be dedicated to thy service, so do accept it of me. Yeah, there's no way that's not real. Yeah, it could fit in a lot of different settings. I think it's one, because I don't remember anybody named Hazael being an enemy of the children of Israel. Like, and why weepeth my... First off, this sounds very Old Testament, but then Hazael asking the Lord why he's weeping, that feels very New Testament. I think this is a conglomeration and it's made up. Yeah, I kind of agree with that, but it'd be boring if we all picked the same one, right? Because if God is omnipotent, <laughs> you know, then yeah. why would he be crying over this? Yeah, it's a serious uh, anthropomorphism because God Although is Lord... like weeping, but it also seems, yeah, okay, so here's another, I'm going to say one, two. It's like almost a combination between some sort of poetic wisdom literature and some narrative literature. And I don't think the sources in the Old Testament were that fancy. So I'm going to say one also. Yeah, I think Diana did a good job making up number one. I think she probably combined two real verses or something. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that they're... I, don't, I think that's the false witness. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with number three. Um, just because the phrase queen of heaven to me seems a bit unusual. And I feel like... If that was in the Bible, I would have heard of it or taken note of it. So maybe that's not a good reason, but I'm going with that. Okay, so I'm opening up the wax-sealed envelope that our producer Diana has given me. I have it in front of me. Okay, number one is um, about dashing the children and ripping up their wombs. That is in the Bible. That is 2 Kings... Eight twelve. I mean, the, uh, the problem I had with it wasn't about the uh, dashing the children. I mean, that's a... Let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> the problem that I had with the verse being real was not that it said dashing the, uh, the children. I thought that that part seemed real. Uh, anyway. Okay, so number one was real. So you guys are incorrect. So... I said number three, so let's take a look at that. Jeremiah 7.18, it's real. 
The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto their gods, that they may provoke me to anger. That is really interesting. I'm going to like look into that and find out more about it, but it's a real verse. So, verse uh, number four is also real. It's from Judges 9.53, which we all knew was real. Yeah. So that means the fake verse is number two. Remember when the woman of Amron said, My Lord, I have vowed to thee what is in my womb to be dedicated to thy service. So do accept it of me, verily. Thou alone, all hearing, all knowing. It is from the Quran, uh, chapter 336. Oh. Im- Imran 336. Okay, well, I will say that it says, remember when the woman of Israel said, not the woman of Imram. Yeah, I think... Um, oh, but Diana's just mixing it up. Okay, Diana's being crafty, so Super that's right. Super crafty, yeah. I, I, sh- I, should have, um, I should have specified that, actually, yeah. She's redacting yeah. the false witness. Um, wow, okay, well, at least this time John was not right. Yeah, I was really going to start questioning the integrity yeah. of the envelope if John got yeah. this one right. Uh, <laughs> at least we all know. That it's all legit. Right. (laughs) Okay, guys. Well, I had a blast in this two-part discussion. And um, it was absolutely wonderful having Katie join us this time. I hope um, she can join us again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. Um, Really great to talk through a lot of these big ideas and concepts with you all. Yeah, it was awesome having you on the show, Katie. Hopefully we'll do it uh, again real soon. All right. Have a good night, y'all. Thank you. Have a good night. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.